turn, if you would, uh, please, and or open, uh, if you will, to Luke chapter 15. We're in this uh, parable, the prodigal son, so-called, erroneously. <clears throat> and uh, this, this parable is extremely... Um, <coughs> Uh, it's got a lot of tentacles to it, and it goes deeper and deeper the more I get into it. So uh, we're going to have to just be very careful. It always uh, helps to be very careful when you read the scriptures. I'm reminded of <coughs> a 16-year-old who had passed his driving test, and he went to his father and says, you know, I think it's time now we talked about the car keys. <laughs> and his father said, well, I've couple of things. Uh, I want you to work on your, raising your grades in school. I want to see you more in the Bible, and I want to see you cut your hair. And the son said, all right, uh, we'll do that. About six weeks later, he came back, and his father said, this is, yeah, this is, I, you've raised your average from a C to a B. You've definitely been in scripture, but I'm really upset that you haven't uh, cut your hair. And the son said, well, I've been studying scripture and I see that John the Baptist had long hair and Moses apparently had long hair and Samson and maybe good case could be made that Jesus had long hair. <laughs> the father, without missing a beat, said, have you noticed all those men walked wherever they went? <laughs> you, have to be, you have to read all of the story. And uh, we, will, we will see, uh, I use going to that one. Uh, we, <clears throat> last week we were, we looked mainly at uh, the younger brother and this time we will look at uh, the older brother. And uh, if you recall where we, uh, where we came from, we had uh, finished with the younger brother, but kind of hurriedly, had to go through the father welcoming him back. Uh, but uh, what we just so desperately need with every Bible passage, but it's very important with this one as well, and, and that's to keep the context in mind. The context of this comes from the first three verses, uh, really the first two verses of the chapter. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, and then it says, therefore, Jesus told them this parable. He told this parable. He's telling it, of course, not only to the Pharisees and the scribes, but to his disciples. We're still in that process where Jesus is uh, ministering to his disciples, trying to grow them uh, into the faith they're going to, to need. And uh, <clears throat> Where we hurriedly uh, concluded was uh, with the, the, this younger uh, son who had run off and, and uh, spent all of his uh, money, and which uh, he, he very uh, unkindly took uh, from the father to begin with and uh, decided to come home. And then the father ran out and greeted him. We'll, by the way, we'll look at the father next week, Lord willing. Uh, Many people have argued about whether the son repented 
Context, again, is very, very useful here. That's not what this parable is about. If you want to read about repentance, uh, as as, uh, we know, if you uh, look at, uh, read any, however far you wish to go in Psalm 51, this is what repentance looks like. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you know how that Psalm continues. Uh, This younger son of the father uh, is... um, around page, uh, well, verse 17 of of Luke 15, uh, says, when he came to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's a conversation that he is mulling over in his mind. It's a plan to go back uh, to his father. Uh, it uh, frankly is is uh, not material whether he has repented fully or not. Uh, I have no trouble. My personal feeling is that if he repented, he probably did so being overwhelmed with the love and the grace that the father showed him uh, rather than all of his plans to come back and, and concoct a story Uh, that would bring him back. But again, it's not the purpose of the parable to determine whether this son repents or not. Uh, Interestingly, I can read you a poem from Rudyard Kipling uh, called The Prodigal Son. Now, Kipling was not a believer, he was not a Christian. Uh, And he doesn't appear, well, I'll read it to you. Here come I to my own again, fed, forgiven, and known again claimed by bone of my bone again and cheered by flesh of my flesh. The fatted calf is dressed for me, but the huss have greater zest for me. I think my pigs will be best for me. So I'm off to the yards afresh. Kipling is saying the younger son comes back and then leaves again. Interesting thought. He says, I never was very refined, you see, and it weighs on my brother's mind, you see. And there's no reproach among swine, do you see, for being a bit of a swine. So I'm off with wallet and staff to eat the bread that is three parts chaff to wheat. But glory be, there's a laugh to it, which isn't the case when we dine. My father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother catechizes me till I want to go out and swear. And in spite of the butler's gravity, I know that the servants have it. I'm a monster of moral depravity, and I'm darned if I think it's fair. I wasted my substance, I know I did, on riotous living, so I did. But there's nothing on record to show I did, worse than my betters have done. They talk of the money I spent out there, but they all forget I was sent out there alone as a rich man's son. It goes on like that. You see the gist of of, uh, Kipling's interpretation. It's interesting how many... Uh, pieces of literature have been uh, have weighed in on this prodigal son, and I think what we're going to see today 
is that, uh, frankly, uh, the point of the parable has much more to do with the other son than the prodigal, so-called prodigal. We have seen that word prodigal, uh, but uh, at any rate, <clears throat> the incredible grace that was shown by the father is going to be another earmark of this uh, particular parable. Uh, the younger brother, at, by the time uh, you get uh, down to uh, the father's response to him in verse 24, the younger brother is going to disappear from this parable uh, and introduce us uh, to the other brother. And again, we'll look at the father next week, uh, Lord willing. Uh, that, by the way, I don't think is going to complete our journey in this parable, but uh, we will see. <clears throat> so the prodigal older brother, uh, remember verse three, the father, a man has two sons. So there's about three different people here, not just one. Uh, but it's interesting to imagine why it is we spend so much time focused on this younger brother as a sinner. Well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons behind it. Uh, we assume that whatever uh, he did in the far country, uh, maybe he did some, some things uh, that he frankly would need to repent of, but much worse than that was what he did to his father. Uh, he frankly was an outrageous sinner and those kinds of sins are easy to see. Uh, we think of them as bad, bad things to do. Uh, and it's important uh, that we see this, uh, this kind of outrageous sin and know what this uh, younger brother needs and that he needs repentance. Uh, but I would submit to you that the sin we're about to see in the older brother is much worse. Uh, it's profound for a number of reasons. It's, it's insidious, uh, it's hidden in his heart. I think it's far more common. Uh, it's destructive in, in tremendous ways. It's very subtle. And those types of sins are often not labeled to the degree we label the younger brother. It's easy to say this is the parable of the prodigal son and, and throw rocks at this, at this uh, uh, kid who's done these outrageous things. But um, what Jesus is doing by telling this parable to the Pharisees, remember the context again, we keep going back and back and back to that. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, are mad at Jesus and plotting to kill him because he hangs around with sinners. That's Keep that in mind always throughout this, this parable. So what Jesus is doing basically is shattering all the categories uh, that we think we know, all the, the assumptions and presumptions. Now, here's what one commentator uh, says very interestingly. He says, why doesn't the church, and he's talking about 21st century church, why doesn't the church look like a hope for younger brothers? In other words, why do all the people who are involved in these, what we think of as outrageous sins, uh, terrible people, these, these uh, heinous uh, sins, these, these, why doesn't the church look like a hope for those kind of people? Why don't those kind of people come to the church? His answer, because the church is filled with elder brothers. Uh, <clears throat> Let's look at this elder brother a little bit. The actions uh, 
technically take place from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, the end of the parable in verse 32. And keep in mind again, uh, this is one big parable. This chapter is one parable told in three iterations. We've seen the lost sheep. We've seen the lost coin. Now we're dealing with uh, at least two lost sons. Uh, but where do we first encounter this elder brother? Frankly, we encounter him in verse 11, even though he's not alluded to, and therein lies the problem. It says, a man had two sons and the younger of them in verse 12 said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So both younger and older brothers are involved here early on. And what is screaming at us from that verse 12 in particular is the silence of the elder brother. Here is his first uh, grievous uh, act by not acting. Uh, the younger, of course, is making humiliating outlandish demands, uh, breaking his father's heart. The older is apparently silent through all of this. What was he called upon to do? He was called upon to step in as the older of the two brothers uh, to, uh, to calm this situation, to deflate all of this kind of activity, to stop it from happening. But he does nothing. In fact, apparently he's complicit in it. He apparently receives the same thing that his younger brother does. Now that's an enormous tip off to the heart of this elder brother. Now we're going to get to him in verse 25. Uh, after the younger has come back, repentant or not, uh, and, and again, uh, I have no trouble either way. After the younger has come back in verse 25, says this, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Uh, so the younger or the, excuse me, the older son is out uh, supervising the work of the estate or the farm or whatever, uh, however you wish. And maybe it's around quitting time or so forth. He's coming back to the house and he hears music and dancing. Now that tells him that there is some sort of joyous occasion taking place and that the guests have already arrived. Verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Oh, there's about four places in these last uh, seven or eight verses where the Greek is incredibly important. Normally, I don't uh, care about getting into all of, of uh, the, the Greek or the Hebrew or this or that. But in this case, it's going to tell us a lot. And I've got to uh, at least allude uh, to some of it here. One of them is this translation of servants in verse 26. It says, he called to one of the servants. Now, when, when Luke uses the word translated servants in the gospel of Luke, is almost every time a Greek word doulos. This is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is pais, uh, P-A-I-S. Uh, that's talking about younger children. What has probably happened here is that the crowd that has come to celebrate with the father and is here have younger kids who are out there in the courtyard. They're not allowed into the singing and the dancing and the music and all of that sort of thing. 
And I remember so well being, being a young child and, and loving it when my parents had some kind of, of uh, uh, party at the house. Uh, I don't ever remember singing and dancing, but I sure do remember the steak that my father cooked. <laughs> uh, and um, all except one, actually, July the 4th. I don't know how. I, oh, goodness. I had thrown a cherry bomb and it clanked. And I thought, we had, there were about 30 kids in, in the front yard. It was dark and we were all doing things we shouldn't have done. And uh, in my case, I threw an explosive device that hit on the hood of a cruiser, police cruiser. <laughs> it had come around a curve with his lights off and I, uh, he, he then, the police pulled into the backyard where the party was. That wasn't a good night, but, but uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, here, here is what's probably happened. These are a lot of the younger kids who are out there. They're out there playing in the courtyard and the elder brother walks up to one of them uh, and uh, inquires. He says, what, uh, what's all this I'm hearing and what do these things mean? Now, verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Uh, interesting word again, in what word is not used in this case, the word in verse 27 translated correctly, your brother has come. Um, many times this parable is stated as saying your brother has returned. The word that's translated into English returned is the same word for repentance. Uh, and that word is not used here. Uh, again, I'm not going to, I don't, that, that's not the point of the parable, but it is correctly translated. So your, your, your brother's basically arrived. He's come back. He's, uh, he's, he's here. Um, your father has killed the fattened calf and received him back safe and sound. Now at that point, this, this, uh, the older son has been out working. His younger brother has gone off and, and uh, sowed wild oats or whatever. Uh, what are the expectations now of this older brother when he gets this news? His younger brother has been off. Uh, dissolute certainly began his journey in, in sinful ways, uh, demanding of his father. Basically, as we alluded to last week, insisting that really I would prefer you to be dead, but if you're not dead, go ahead and give me the inheritance anyway. Uh, so what should the, the older brother's response be? Well, there are a number of them traditionally in that culture. He should and was expected to then enter the house and become a host, uh, sort of like a best man at a rehearsal dinner. Uh, the celebration is for his younger brother. And the older is, uh, it's assumed that he will go in and, and not only join the celebration, but in a sense, lead it. Uh, indeed, he was expected in that culture to remove his shoes so that he served barefoot the guests who were in this particular house in order to show his younger brother that tonight I serve you. Even though I'm the older brother, I serve you and the, uh, the celebration of your coming home. Uh, the whole point of, of all of these actions is to bring honor to his younger brother, which he is supposed to do. Now, if 
for whatever reason, he was angry. And, and as we know, he is more than angry. He was then supposed to do every single thing I just said and talk to his father after all the guests have gone home. He is not to make a scene. He is not to do anything foolish. He is ex expected to go into the house and, uh, and bring honor to his younger brother who has returned. Verse 28, first sentence of it, but he was angry and refused to go in. What the younger or the older is doing here is a very large and public humiliation of his father. So here we go again. The younger brother accomplished that by demanding his inheritance and going through all of those sorts of things. Uh, his father chose to humiliate himself when he saw him, the younger, coming from a long way off, hiked up his robes and ran through the village to see him. The older is forcing this onto his father uh, by refusing to go in. Now, by this time, you can imagine what the party has become. Probably no more singing and dancing and, uh, and music. Everyone is now aware that an incredible insult is underway right outside the door. Uh, so what now is the father going to do? They're now going to switch uh, their vision, they being the guests, and look, how will this father react to this? Now, normally, what would have been expected is either ignore his older son, publicly punish his older son, or the very least demonstrate extreme displeasure toward his older son. Once again, verse 28, B, the second sentence. His father came out and entreated him. Uh, once again, we see this, uh, this father um, willing to humiliate himself publicly and respond with amazing grace and amazing love toward this older son. Uh, I, I hate to be a broken record, but remember the context. We're in the Gospel of Luke. This is Jesus speaking these words of a father uh, who is willing to be publicly humiliated. This is God, the son, who will be more than publicly humiliated uh, with being beaten, stripped, spit on, insulted, and nailed to a tree. So keep all of that uh, context in the back. Uh, so the father goes out, it says in verse 28, <clears throat> and entreats the son. So now uh, the guests are wondering, okay, now what's the older son going to do in response? Uh, maybe... Uh, the older son should react the way the younger did. Maybe he should have taken a, a cue uh, from his younger brother and, and repented, or at least come back in a humble way to his father. Here's what he does in verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Oh, 
it, it's so bad. Now here, here we've got to deal with a little bit of Greek again. There is a fascinating little word at the front end of this verse that goes untranslated. That's not that unusual. Uh, language, meaning comes through sentences. It doesn't come through words. Uh, obviously words are used to compose a sentence, but meaning is translated through sentence. I'll never forget uh, going up to Westminster Seminary as, as my first um, uh, tenuous act of uh, toward a preaching class. And um, I thought, not a problem. I've got 10,000 of these little, video, of, uh, little um, audio cassettes of my home pastor in Macon, Georgia, who was one of the best preachers I've ever heard. He, he, it was just incredible. All I've got to do is transpose these sermons and I will learn how to preach and I will mimic. Well, I started, you know, go four words, back, rewind, four words, write it down, back, rewind. What I found when I did that is probably half of his sentences were incomplete sentences. Uh, we didn't, you, you didn't get that when you listen to the man preach, but that's how meaning is conveyed. Uh, so there oftentimes there will be a word here or there or even the absence of a word here or there that will help the meaning. Uh, that happens here in, uh, in this 29th verse. And it's fascinating to me. Uh, it, it, it's just before that word translated look. Uh, there's another word there. Now the, the NAS, the New American Standard, which is known for being very, very literal, puts an exclamation mark after look. Here in the ESV, is just a little, there's a uh, comma. Uh, ESV says, look, these many years I've served you. Look, Paul, these many years I've served you. NAS says, look, these many years I've served it, it's, it strikes me what today would, would be, um, what, what this older son amazingly is saying to his father is, uh, we might today say, really? Um, are you serious? You're going to treat me like this? Uh, that's, that's the emotion that's behind it. There's much more anger that, that comes out in the English uh, here, uh, maybe even dissing his father. You know, often today, if we get in these um, tirades with people, we might say, hello, don't you get it? That's the attitude that's conveyed by that one word that's not translated. They deal with it. The word look, by the way, is there, and that's okay. And, but um, but there's, a lot, there's, there's angst. And this older brother, this, this older son of this man is, is willing to get in his father's face and say the words he, he says there in verse 29. Uh, look, these many years I have served you. Uh, here we go again. That word serve is doulos. That's the normal, uh, it's the verb form of, uh, of doulos. He's, he's really saying, I've slaved away for you for these many years, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me, and by the way, that me, again in the Greek, to me is the first words of that phrase of the sentence. Greek is a language that, that puts the most important part of a sentence 
it leads with it. It puts it up front. A lot of languages do that. We do not do that in English. Uh, it's translated in English as if we had said it in English. But what he's saying, me, I get the dregs. I get what comes last, even though I am the one who has served you, slave for you. But they, hello, this is what is coming out of this, uh, this son's mouth in verse 29. Uh, notice, for instance, um, no title. His father comes out and he says, look, every time up until this part of this parable, any son that, that addressed his father began by saying father and then spoke whatever it was on it. No, no title whatsoever, no, no acknowledgement of father, which is another insult. Um, so he's choosing, obviously, to be rude, disrespectful, refusing to reconcile with his younger brother. Obviously, he's not even going to go into the house. Uh, he says, I have served you, slaved. I've never disobeyed your commands. He looks only to the letter of the law. Yet you never gave me, young goat, first words, me emphasize, or my friends. He's accusing the father of favoritism and excluding his family as friends. He says, you never let my friends come in here. They're not having nothing to do with my family, but I've got friends out there and you're not letting me bring them. You don't ever celebrate with them. He continues to dig his hole in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He despises his brother. He won't even call him his brother. He says, when this son of yours, I don't have anything to do with this, with this guy, but this son of yours comes in, uh, here's, uh, here's what happened. He's devoured your property with prostitutes. He has no clue what he's talking about. Some commentators will say that's probably what the elder would have done had he run off with all the money, since this is what pops into his mind. I don't, neither here nor there. Uh, but the point is, he has no clue what his younger brother was doing. But you kill the fattened calf for him, and that's like the cherry on the whipped cream. Kenneth Bailey says this, it is surely hard to find in the history of literature any man who so completely condemns himself with his own words as this older son. And I think that's a very accurate description of this, of this man. He's shown disrespect, bitterness, arrogance, envy, pride, resentment, hatred, self-centeredness, stinginess, deception. He has lied. He is angry, sarcasm, and much more. And this parable is known as the prodigal of the son, the, the prodigal son, meaning the younger. Think of the context again. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He tells them this parable when they have said, we're angry because you meet with sinners. So he's told them about the sinner in the room, the younger brother. But now he's saying, suppose you're a Pharisee in the room, a person who goes on the legal code, who according to the rest of the world, you're the leaders of the religious community. You do it right. You've never run off from home. And what Jesus is saying, but I'm looking inside your heart. And I looked inside the heart of your younger brother. Your younger brother came back. He came home. You've never left home and you're a lot more lost than he ever was. 
in the far country. You've got disrespect, bitterness, arrogance, envy, pride, resentment, hatred, self-centeredness, blah, blah, blah. But nobody sees it. But Jesus is saying, I see it. First level of, of meaning is, is uh, again, committed to these Pharisees. Now, what in the world is the father going to do now? Is he going to take that kind of abuse? And you know that the people who had come to the house have seen this entire episode, verses 31 and 32. And he said, he the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, because that last verse says what it does, I tend to think the younger brother has repented. Again, it's not the purpose of the parable. And we're not going to we'll get into the father next week. Here's a conclusion that comes from all of this. There are two sons in the parable. Both of them are lost. Both of them alienated from their father. In the eyes of the world, however, only one of them is bad. The other one's good. The other one's that older guy. Yeah, he's all, he's done everything. He Look how he's cared for the farm, done all the work. He never misses anything he's, he's not supposed to miss. Uh, he, he's the good, the good son. He's the one who remains lost in the parable Jesus is speaking. The lover of prostitutes, so-called, is saved. The legalist, the obedient, the achiever, the hard worker remains lost. You can almost hear the gasp that comes from the Pharisees at this point. Two sons, both of them very much alike. They both want total control of their father's wealth. They both want their father out of the way. Both are lost. One of them comes back. And it's not the one that people would normally predict. So why does the older son remain lost? Uh, works righteousness certainly has um, has a lot to do with this. The feeling with works righteousness is that if I'm not bad, then God, therefore, should approve and accept and reward me for it. Uh, you owe it to me, God, because look at who I have been and what I have done for you. If we live a, little, a good life, we feel it should be rewarded. Now, what happens when our providential sovereign God brings a disaster into our lives. Um, this, this just goes so, so deeply. You remember last week I, I talked about that quote from Tim Keller, which says this parable, if you look at it, is one of the few places that, it, that we've looked all the way to the bottom of the gospel lake. Uh, I am still trying to find the bottom of that, of that lake. Uh, this parable is just keeps going and going and going. Uh, but the key to it is a works righteousness assumption. And the people who live their lives under a works righteousness assumption make Jesus their helper, their friend, their example, their inspiration, but not their savior because they don't see themselves as sinners. Uh, one of the commentators uh, said this of, of elder, the elder brother, the works righteousness orientation. Um, when something will go wrong in your life, you're liable to be angry and bitter 
rather than disappointed and faithful through it. Because after all, you, you earn this. You don't, you don't deserve this to happen. It's exactly the, the sense you get from this elder brother. Um, you'll be angry with God and with yourself pretty often. You will doubt yourself because after all, have I ever done enough in the eyes of God? You'll have a strong sense of pride, achievement, superiority. You'll develop a judgmental spirit, unforgiving of the failures in others that you will be very quick to point out. You'll tend to be competitive, comparing yourself with others. When we get to Luke 18, we've alluded to that little vignette often where the, the tax collector goes into the temple to pray with the Pharisee, with the publican, and the tax collector won't even look up. He just says, oh, God, forgive me, a sinner. And the Pharisee's over there looking and said, God, thank you for that I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that younger brother. When in point of fact, the Pharisee is infinitely worse than that tax collector, than that younger brother. Um, it, it comes, it, it, we feel like we're worthy. We feel like um, indeed we are our own savior and king. We don't need Jesus as savior. He's I'm glad he's there for an example and inspiration. Um, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm just going to allude very quickly. Flannery O'Connor, she's uh, I believe to be one of the one of the South's uh, leading uh, literary figures, famous for her short stories, died uh, not too long ago, somewhere in the '60s, I think, nineteen uh, sixties, and uh, mainly famous for short stories. But she did write three novels. The very first one she wrote is called Wise Blood. Um, by that title, what she means is is what we might call a person who is savvy, a person who is street smart, a person who, uh, who just gets it innately. But in, that, uh, in the opening chapter of that book, she has an interesting sentence. Uh, an evangelist is speaking to this uh, main character. The main character is Hazel Motes uh, and, and bringing Jesus to him. He said, Jesus will have you in the end. The boy, Motes, didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And he becomes, uh, by the time that book ends, he is a, uh, an evangelist in his own right, uh, leading what he calls the church without Christ. Uh, doesn't need Christ, doesn't want Christ, doesn't uh, think there is any call for Christ. He's running uh, from Christ. Here's, here's another one, very famous. Uh, people who know these things think this is the greatest book ever written by an American, Moby Dick. Book about a big fish, right? Big, uh, actually, that's one of the big, big grievances. People throw rocks at Melville, but Herman Melville, the author, because they, he calls a whale a fish, and people ought to know better than that. Uh, who knows, who remembers the opening of this book? The most famous opening line of any piece of literature in the history of the planet. Three words. Sam? My name is Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Herman Melville uh, grew up uh, in, a, in a very loving family. Born in New York City, 1811, I think. 
really, really close to his father. His mother was strict uh, Dutch Calvinist, loving family, eight kids. Melville was 13 years old when his father died unexpectedly, and it crushed him, and he didn't know how to handle it. Uh, how old was Ishmael when Abraham is told by God that Isaac is the man, not Ishmael? Ishmael, if you read Genesis, Ishmael was 13 years old when he was disassociated. Melville was 13 years old when he felt disassociated. So he's angry with God. He's, he's trying to find God, which as you know, that's the whale. Uh, there are two sermons in this book, critically important. The first one is, a, not surprisingly, a sermon about Jonah, who God sends after what? A whale. Uh, this book has so, Bob Dylan, most of you probably didn't even, I had forgot, Bob Dylan got a Nobel Prize for literature. Well, regardless of what you think about Bob Dylan, his acceptance speech, 2016, uh, for the Nobel Prize, he talks about Moby Dick for six and a half minutes in his acceptance speech. He said, that was one of my guiding lights. Uh, Dylan has gone through a phase. I don't know what to think of Bob Dylan, but he, he, one of his albums called Slow Train Coming is one of the most insightful Christian uh, pieces of Christian music uh, you'll ever get your hands on. Dylan was a brilliant, is a brilliant man. And again, regardless of, what, of where he is or what you think of him, uh, he talks about Moby Dick. If you want to know about Moby Dick, listen to Dylan's Nobel Prize acceptance speech. The last word of this book, orphan. Melville never gets there. Why? Why does Melville never get there? Why does the elder brother never get there? Why does anybody who is works righteousness oriented, who thinks if I look good in the eyes of the public and nobody knows the secrets that are in my heart, that is Christianity because they don't have a savior. In Melville's case, uh, it, there was a, that time in American history was a time where faith was in short supply because this book had been thrown out the window. How do you avoid being an elder brother? How do you avoid being a younger brother? This book and the faith that will get you back to Jesus Christ whenever these kinds of things happen in your life. Uh, don't remain angry. Don't remain orphaned. Don't remain out there in the cold, uh, but find your way home uh, through Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, overt or covert. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, there, there is just so much to ponder in this parable and in all of the words of Scripture. And we don't, we're not capable of getting to the depths of it. We acknowledge that we're sinful people. We can't think straight. But help us to see that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and that sinners like us, whether our sins be in our heads of things we did, we wish we hadn't done, we hope nobody ever knows about them, whether they are ongoing day to day that we must face, we must live with, realizing that it is your providence that has put us in the positions we are with the people with whom we go through these providences. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, Father. Keep us focused on the Son the true son, the true elder brother. Keep us focused 
on the Savior of sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.